0: Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious and for medical students. Today's episode, is that a snake in the grass?
1: I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, a senior lecturer in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional, nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance anything you hear on this podcast. Are you going to be bitten by today's podcast? Recent summers in Australia have seen a rise in the number of snake encounters. Today we're going to be talking about snake bites. We've got a great team here to discuss snake bites today. Would everybody please take a moment to introduce yourselves?
2: Hello, my name's Dr. Georgina Stevens. I'm a medical practitioner who works primarily in education.
3: Hi, my name's Jonathan.
0: I'm a final year medical student. Hi, my name's Wayne, and I'm head of the Monash Venom Group in the Department of Pharmacology.
1: Down under, we're known for our venomous snakes, and though bites are rare, and fatality is rarer still, they do occur.
2: Suspected bites in Australia run to several thousand per year. When I say suspected, I mean people think they've been bitten by a snake, but they actually haven't. So an example of that would be someone out walking in the bush. They walk over a stick that scratches them, and without seeing a snake, they see a wound on their ankle, and immediately they worry that it's been a snake. So that's something that's referred to as a stick bite. Actual bites that result in envenomation... That is where the snake actually bites someone and injects venom. They probably run at about 100 to 300 a year at most. In terms of the location of where people are bitten on their body, this is most frequently on their limbs, with 52% of bites occurring on the upper limb and 42% on the lower limb.
1: Upper limb extends all the way from your shoulder to your fingers. We actually divide that into the arm and forearms. The lower limb extends from the hip and buttock region down through the toes. From the hip to the knee, we refer to anatomically as the thigh, and from the knee to the ankle, we refer to as the leg.
2: Deaths are really quite rare, with one to about four annually. In terms of who gets bitten, the median age is 38, with 73% of victims being male. Actually, 11% of those bitten are snake handlers, so if you're not a snake handler, you're already ahead. It's not only people in rural or bushland areas who are bitten. Most people are bitten when they are walking or performing another activity while they are not knowingly near a snake. We've seen plenty of memes on social media
1: highlighting that Australia is home to the most number of venomous snakes in the world.
0: There's different types of snakes. So, Australian venomous snakes are all elapids, which means they're just like giant worms. They have very small fangs, two to three, four or five millimetres long, which are fixed and so they don't rotate.
2: There are five main genera of medically important snakes in Australia these are brown snakes, tiger snakes, taipans, death adders, and black snakes. However, 90% of medically important snake bites occur from brown or tiger snakes.
0: Whereas North American snakes, you know, the classical ones we see in movies, are vipers. So vipers have triangular heads and their bodies, you know, are not long and narrow like a big worm. They have much larger midsections and a little rat-like tail. Lapids inject very small amounts of venom normally, whereas vipers inject large amounts of venoms, And that's one of the reasons we think Australian snakes are so venomous, because their biting mechanism is not highly evolved. So they have to get small amounts of venom into the body, and therefore it has to have very quick and immediate
3: effects. How exactly do snake bites cause harm?
1: Snake bites are similar to what you would see with a puncture wound. In order to understand how they might cause harm, the first thing we need to cover are the layers that the puncture wound would go through and that focuses around the skin. And there's actually three layers that are really important around the skin. The epidermis is the majority of the barrier that we talk about when we talk about the function of the skin. So it's a barrier protecting internal structures from the assaults that can happen from the outside world. The next layer deep is the dermal layer, This layer is where the majority of the blood vessels and connection to the deeper structures are. In this layer, we also have lymphatics, which are going to play a critical role in snake bites. Below this layer, we have what's called the subcutaneous layer. This subcutaneous layer is a loose connective tissue, kind of loose structured fat. Deep to the subcutaneous tissue is going to be the deep fascia. This deep fascia is what surrounds and protects deeper structures, including the muscles. So after we get through that, we are down into the muscular layer. The important part here is that the vessels that are found in the dermis connect all the way through these different fascial layers.
3: So how do snake poisons
0: affect the body? Snakes aren't actually poisonous. This is one of my pet hates. In fact, snakes are venomous, as are many other animals. So the difference between a poisonous animal and a venomous animal is how the toxins get into the human body. Venomous animals contain some form of apparatus to inject the toxins into the human body. So these include jellyfish, which have nematocysts on their tentacles, bees, which have a, a sting, spiders, which have fangs, and snakes, which have fangs. Poisonous animals such as pufferfish or cane toads have toxins in their skin, but you have to ingest those. There's no mechanism for poking a
3: hole into the human skin and then injecting toxins. But how exactly do these venoms and poisons affect the body?
2: To affect the body, venoms need to enter the circulatory system.
1: From an anatomical perspective, the circulatory system includes both the vascular system and blood vessels, as well as the lymphatic pathway.
3: And I understand that they also have some immune function.
1: The lymphatic system has a dual function. One, it plays a role in immune system and preventing invaders. It also helps catch any leaky fluid coming out of the nearby blood vessels. Since most snake bites happen on your limbs, you can predict where you might
2: end up with swollen lymphatic nodes. The lymph vessels or capillaries drain their fluid back to a set of lymph nodes. Lymph nodes you might know as the glands that get swollen in your neck and other areas when you have an infection such as tonsillitis. The lymph nodes swell up not because they're being filled with fluid, but because they're picking up that there is an invader in the body that might cause it harm, such as an infection or in this case, a toxin. Because most snake
1: bites occur on the limbs, we can predict the lymph nodes which are affected by the snake bite venom. Specifically, if you're bitten on the upper limb, the venom will spread and eventually move to the armpit or axillary lymph nodes. If you're bitten on the lower limb, lymphatic drainage will follow a regular pathway back to the inguinal nodes or the groin area.
0: When discussing what effects venoms have on humans, it's really interesting to think about why venoms have evolved, because humans aren't the intended targets. Animals evolved venom so they could subdue and capture prey, also to start digestion. So the venoms are really designed to stop important physiological processes such as movement, breathing, the control of blood pressure, and blood coagulation. So the take-home message is if you're a snake and you're trying to stop a rat or a mouse from running away, you want to stop it moving and you want to stop it breathing. Therefore, skeletal muscles are a target with regards to movement, and the diaphragm is a target with regards to respiration.
1: And so when we look at the symptoms of snake bites, they reflect these impacts on physiology. Specifically, we see neurotoxicity or effect on nerves, myotoxicity or effect on muscles, and we also see effects on coagulation. What we might see with neurotoxicity is a drooping eyelid known as ptosis. We might see double vision because of the effects of cranial nerve 3. We also might have difficulty breathing because of the venomous effects on the phrenic
2: nerve. In terms of myotoxicity, this results in the destruction of muscle. In this case, the patient might experience muscle tenderness. We might also see the effects of this in blood tests. Ultimately, if there's a lot of destruction of muscle, this can also result in kidney failure.
0: I think it's worth just thinking about how the neurotoxins work. So when nerves talk to muscles, there's a chemical that comes out of the nerves that then goes across to the muscle and initiates the response. So Australian snakes have been very clever and evolved two different types of neurotoxins. One type of neurotoxin stops the chemical transmitter from being released,
3: and the other type of toxin stops the chemical transmitter from binding at the skeletal muscle. Could you tell us about the effect of snake bites on neuromuscular junctions themselves? Let's look at the skeletal neuromuscular junction. So the nerve doesn't actually touch the muscle. There's a gap or a
0: junction which we call a synapse. A chemical comes out of the nerve and binds at the skeletal muscle which then activates movement. The snake venom has evolved to stop that chemical from being released. So in the nerve terminal, there's little vesicles or balloons which contain the chemical transmitter which we call acetylcholine. The snake venom stops the acetylcholine from being released.
1: The effects of venom on presynaptic locations may be a slow one.
3: That's correct. The presynaptic effects are relatively slow. So if I'm understanding correctly, it's sort of like a Ferris wheel. You've got passengers in each carriage, which in this case would be the neurotransmitters, and then that Ferris wheel slowly lets those passengers off, and those passengers would go on to stimulate the muscle. Otherwise, no new passengers are getting on, and eventually you run out of passengers or neurotransmitter, and then you're in a bit of trouble. Is that correct? That's correct. Good analogy. So that's presynaptic effects from neurotoxic venom, but what about postsynaptic effects of neurotoxic venom? And is there a difference between what we see in terms of the symptoms of presynaptic and postsynaptic venoms? I think there's not too much difference between the symptoms,
0: but the speed is much different. So the postsynaptics are much faster than the presynaptic. The postsynaptics are basically blockers, so they just stop the chemical transmitter from interacting with the active site on the skeletal muscle, which we call a receptor.
1: So you get immediate
2: stoppage of limb function.
0: Correct. The chemical transmitter can't tell the muscle to contract, and that's very fast.
2: The other effect we sometimes see is instant collapse.
0: This is a really interesting phenomenon, and we still really don't understand the basis for this collapse. It may be a direct effect of the venoms or toxins on the heart, or it could be an effect of the venoms or toxins on blood vessels, or it could be both. The end result of those toxins is that the blood pressure just really collapses. So it drops through the floor very rapidly and and the patient just loses consciousness.
2: We might also see bleeding in relation to snake bites. That could be from the bite site itself where you have any needles put in if you're in hospital and also from your oral cavity or indeed internal bleeding.
0: Once again, this is a really interesting phenomenon with snakes because some of the snakes in Australia have got toxins which stop blood from clotting while other snakes have toxins which cause the blood to clot throughout the whole body, and we eventually run out of clotting factors. This is called venom-induced consumptive coagulopathy.
3: The end result would be excessive bleeding.
0: Correct. So in the end, blood's incoagulable. You can't clot.
1: So far, we've learned that there are many ways in which snake bites can affect the body. Specifically, they can affect it through neurotoxicity, myotoxicity, effects on coagulation, and in the case of brown snakes, immediate death due to effects on the heart.
3: Wow, that's a little bit terrifying. But what might be the first steps in snake bite first aid? Well, the best thing is not to be bitten in the first place. And how might you avoid snakes?
0: I think when we do bushwalking and things like that, we're told to make a bit of noise. The snakes are really not trying to bite humans. They don't see us as a source of food, and therefore they're more than happy to run away if they know that we're coming.
1: And the snakes in Australia, with their smaller fangs, it means that we can wear preventative clothing that would prohibit their fangs from getting to the skin.
0: Absolutely. So just a pair of socks on the outside of your jeans and some walking boots will stop most Australian snakes from penetrating. Do snakes always inject venom? Not necessarily. Snakes can choose how much venom to inject. It's energy costly for snakes to produce venom, so they don't want to waste it. They have no intention of biting humans to kill them or to eat them, so therefore they don't want to waste venom unnecessarily. And if you do get bitten,
3: then what should you do?
2: For the first aid approach to snake bites, you can follow an acronym. The acronym is Dr. S. A. B. C. D. D stands for danger. In this case, it would be avoiding further contact with the snake. So don't try and pick it up. R is response. So if you're not the person who's been bitten, you should check with the person who's been bitten if they're okay, how they're feeling. S stands for send for help, so that would be call an ambulance. A stands for airway, B for breathing, and C for circulation. So essentially, if the person who's been bitten looks like they're seriously unwell and has collapsed, at this point, you would start CPR. After you've assessed the person and figured out that they don't need CPR, because essentially they're still talking to you, the next step is to institute pressure immobilization. So if the person has been bitten on one of their limbs, if you have access to a bandage or if not a piece of clothing, you should essentially bandage up the limb quite tightly. If you have something you could splint the limb to keep it immobile, you can also splint the limb. But otherwise, the best thing is to stay still and absolutely not move.
1: Immobilization is really critical, especially when we consider how venom travels through the circulatory system. So we talked earlier about blood vessels and lymphatic drainage being in that dermal layer of skin. As it travels towards the heart, it'll go through deeper and deeper layers, eventually getting through that deep fascial layer, deep to or under the muscular layer. Every time you move, those muscles push against those vessels, the lymphatic and blood vessels, pushing the venom around the body. So the more you can immobilize the greater chance you have of sequestering that venom in the bite.
0: I think the really important thing there, as you've just talked about, was the difference between pressure immobilization and a tourniquet. So we do not recommend tourniquets anymore. Tourniquets stop blood flow, and that's not the point of pressure immobilization bandage. It's to stop
3: lymph flow. And a tourniquet would just be, say, a piece of cloth wrapped tightly around one segment of the limb in this case. That's correct. Is it important to take note of what type of snake bit you?
2: Yes and no. The way we treat snake bites involves giving an envenomed person antivenom. The type of antivenom does depend on the type of snake that bit you, going back to the five main types of snake that we mentioned earlier in the podcast. However, if you're not sure what type of snake bit you, as a lot of people won't be, there are still ways that we can get around this to give you the appropriate treatment. There is something known as the snake venom detection kit. If you've been bitten by a snake, don't wash the area because the people treating you can then swab the area to get a sample of the venom to help determine what type of snake bit you. We can also infer the type of snake from the geographic location you were bitten in. And also we know from statistics that actually 90% of medically important snake bites are from tiger and brown snakes in Australia.
0: I think the really important link there is not to try and capture the snake, as was discussed before, because the result will be another bite.
2: The biggest take-home
1: so far has really been to immobilise, 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 and then
2: prevent any further bites.
3: So once you've immobilised the bite and arrived at the hospital, what do the doctors do to actually treat the bite?
2: Like in any scenario in which a patient presents to hospital, the doctors will evaluate the patient by taking a history and performing a relevant examination to arrive at a clinical diagnosis. There is no single test that will tell us whether someone is envenomed or not. In the case of snake bite, this will include checking the effects of envenomation that we mentioned, such as paralysis of the muscles around your eyes, and taking blood tests to check for things like the effects of the snake bite on your clotting factors. Importantly, this evaluation will happen quickly. Because if antivenom is needed, this should be given as soon as possible.
3: Where does the role of the snake venom detection kit fit in then?
2: The role of the snake venom detection kit is not to determine whether someone needs antivenom. That is a decision that your doctor makes based on the symptoms and signs that you're experiencing after a snake bite. What the snake venom detection kit does do is help you determine which antivenom to give if you need it.
3: And should you give as much antivenom as possible?
2: No. The way that antivenom is designed is that one vial is sufficient.
3: How is antivenom produced? So we're actually lucky that snake venoms are
0: largely made of proteins. So what we do is we inject small amounts of snake venom into an animal, and with snake venoms in Australia, these are horses. Over a period of time, the horse can tolerate more and more venom, and then we actually use the horses as an animal blood bank.
1: So after a certain amount of time, the horse blood now contains protection against the venom that can be transfused or applied to the person who's been bitten.
3: Essentially, people who've been bitten by snakes and for whom the doctor decides it's appropriate to give antivenom are essentially receiving horse blood transfusions. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And this is one of the risks of giving antivenoms.
2: And that's also why we don't just give antivenom to everyone, because there is a risk involved. This can result in a minor allergic reaction like a rash or it could be what's known as an anaphylactic reaction where somebody's blood pressure can drop really quickly, even resulting in death.
3: If the doctor decides not to give antivenom, then what are the other options?
2: Part of snake bite treatment in general is supportive care and this goes for whether someone is given antivenom or not. So supportive care will be looking after all the effects of the snake venom on the body. So this would include performing a series of blood tests to look for the effects on the coagulation and maybe giving different blood products to help support that. If there's severe effects on breathing, it might involve assisting someone's breathing with a breathing tube. In cases of kidney failure, it might also involve dialysis.
3: How does the antivenom actually work?
2: The antivenom doesn't actually remove the toxins from the bloodstream. What it does is attaches to them and neutralizes them so they can't cause any harm.
3: And eventually those toxins that are now attached to the antibodies are then flushed out and excreted by the body naturally. Is that right?
2: That's right. If we want to, we can actually detect venom in urine because that's how it's excreted eventually.
3: So snakes might kill you, but is there a practical use for their venom? That's a really good question. A lot of researchers in the world are
0: looking for therapeutic applications for snake venoms and other venoms. And in fact, one of the major blood pressure-lowering medications we use, which are called angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, actually were developed based on a protein found in the Brazilian pit viper venom.
1: So on the podcast today, we've covered different types of snakes, the variability of geographical locations of these snakes, the different mechanisms by which venom produces symptoms, and then the treatments and best practices for handling snake bites. That's all we have time for today. Thank you, Georgie, Jonathan, and Wayne, for discussing snake bites today on the podcast. Don't forget to head over to our website, askanatomist.com, for more episodes and links to resources. And follow us on Twitter. So if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, don't hesitate to ask anatomist and use the hashtag AnatQ.